You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We've been uh, studying uh, Paul's letter now for the better part of a year, and uh, we've come to the end of of Romans chapter 7 today, this morning. Most of... uh, the reference material that, that I've consult, the commentaries, uh, call this passage in this particular passage in Romans the most controversial and difficult to interpret. Um, there's a, some, some sense in which I feel like I say that about every week with some of the challenges uh, that we've uh, encountered in Romans. Uh, but I, I want you uh, to be aware of that, and I want you to be aware of some of the debate that surrounds this uh, chapter. And at the same time, I want you to keep the main thing uh, in focus. I think uh, Alistair Begg says uh, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And I agree with that wholeheartedly, but but there are some passages um, when the plain things aren't so plain. And uh, this is uh, one of those uh, passages I think you're in Romans, and so there's some difficulty to it. So this is a sermon that's a little different, and it's going to be, I think, answering the question why, uh, why we struggle so much uh, with sin, even though we've been born again and saved. And uh, Paul is is, uh, answering a a big part of that in this, this text. So let's get started. Romans 7, 14, we read these words, for we know... That the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, thank you for the privilege it is to gather like this and to study your word this morning. And we do pray for your help, Lord, uh, that the plain things would become plainer, that we would understand, Lord, what Paul is saying here about the struggles Uh, that we have in the Christian life. And may you use this text, Lord, um, by the power of your Spirit to apply it to us and give us understanding that we might continue in this fight, um, the the pursuit of holiness in Christ. 
And I pray that you would use me today as your, ser- as your servant, Lord. I-, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the first things that we have to wrestle with uh, is who is the person that Paul is referring to here when he uses the personal pronoun I. Um, You you would think that would be pretty clear, but there's been remarkable debate uh, about that. Is Paul speaking of himself or someone else? Uh, Is Paul uh, speaking of himself before he became a Christian or after he became a Christian? And if he's speaking of himself as a believer, is he a mature believer or an immature believer? And so there's a lot of debate about this, and and a lot of good Bible-believing scholars uh, differ on their answers to those questions. Some think that there's no way that Paul could be writing as a Christian uh, these particular words as a saved person, because how could a saved person, for example, be described, as Paul says there in verse 14, as one, notice the phrase, sold under sin? How could a saved person make that kind of claim? Others think that Paul was saved, but that he was writing as an immature believer, as someone who hadn't come into light, uh, perhaps in Romans chapter so let me just explain, just a, that's just a nutshell of the debate, but let me just explain kind of where I've landed on this, and maybe some of my reasoning will be helpful to you, or maybe you'll think he's crazy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't know, you judge. Um, I think Paul is writing as a mature believer in Christ, and for several reasons. First, notice the change in the verb tenses from verses 1 through 13 Uh, the first half of this, and verses 14 uh, and through 25, our text today. The first, if you just notice the language at first in verse uh, 4, for example, you know that Paul is writing there in the past tense. He makes statements like verse 4, you also have, you have died to the law. It's something in the past. Verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to it, something that happened. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. You notice there, he's speaking about his life before Christ and something that happened to him, his salvation that changed his life. But notice the change in verses 14 through 25. The verb tense suddenly changes to the present tense. Verse 14, I am of the flesh. Verse 15, I don't understand my actions. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want. And if you look all the way down through there, it's all present tense. He's describing something that is a reality in his present life, uh, his present experience. A second reason I think he's writing as a mature believer is his love for the law and his hatred of his own sin. And you you see that very plain. Verse 15, he says, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. What's he talking about? His sin. He hates it, right? Verse 22, though, he says at the same time, I delight in the law of God. I delight in the law. Those two statements are important, I think, because only a true Christian can have a deep love for the Scriptures. 
like that. I love the law, he says, and at the same time, a hatred for their own sin. It's one of the clear marks of a believer in Christ. I appreciated Brent opening up with 2 Corinthians 5. He spoke of how as Christians we are new creations in Christ, right? Behold, the old is past, the new has come. Our hearts have been changed, amen? And so unbelievers don't love the law of God. Unbelievers don't hate their sin. This is someone who's been changed. A third reason I think Paul is writing as a mature Christian is the struggle that he is experiencing. And that's pretty clear throughout it. Verse 15 again, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And he mentions it several more times. And in verse 23, notice he calls it a war within him. A war. Before we are saved, there is no war in us. But remember, Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But in Christ, God has made us alive, we're told. When we're saved, that's when the war begins in us. That's when the struggle begins. And that battle, which can be so long and hard and even demoralizing at times, is actually a sign of our salvation. If you are struggling with the tension in you, wanting to obey God, and yet finding yourself struggling in sin, this is actually a sign of life, a sign of salvation in you. And oftentimes that struggle will become more fierce as we grow spiritually. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You can even hear some of Paul's language there from Romans 7, can't you? So those of you who are believers, you know this struggle well. There's something about these words here that resonate with with you, the struggle. These words don't just refer to the beginning of our Christian lives. They refer to the struggle throughout our Christian lives. There's a sense in which the, the closer that we move toward Christ, toward growing in Christ's likeness, the more aware we become of our sinfulness. And that's the way it should be, amen? Because Christ is our glorious, holy Savior. And the closer that we get to Him, the more we're aware of our own sin. It's why if you trace Paul's testimony of thought throughout the New Testament, you see this downward progression. So in about 55 A.D., Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, and he concluded this at the end of that. He said, I am the least of the apostles. All right, well, that's a statement. I'm a least of the apostles. That's, that's interesting. The apostles were, you know, were, were up there. Five years later, though, uh, in his first uh, imprisonment letter in the Ephesians, he wrote this. He says, I'm the very least of all the saints. Hmm. So he was least of all the apostles, but five years later now, he has a little different perspective. Uh, he is uh, least of all the saints. About three to five years after that, Paul writes 1 Timothy, and he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, he said. And you read that, and you think, now, wait a minute, he's going backward, isn't he? This is not a great progression, but it actually is a great progression in the Christian life. 
He's actually going forward because he's growing in humility. There's a heightened sense of conviction as he grows closer to the Lord. He recognizes it more and more. And that's the way it should be, brothers and sisters. So this struggle here in Romans 7 is not negative, but rather, in a sense, normative in the Christian life. And at the same time we say that it's normative, we also say that this isn't everything Paul has to say about being a Christian, right? He's not, this isn't the only testimony he gives. Romans 8 is coming in which he will talk about how we are more than conquerors in, in Christ. And so this Romans 7 doesn't describe the whole of his Christian testimony, but it is a part of it. And it's part of us, all, all of us who are believers in Christ. So how does Paul explain this? How does this work? How does this give us some sense of hope in the struggles that we have uh, with sin? Well, there are some uh, double realities, double realities, as John Stott calls them, that are true of us as believers. And so I want, you, I want us to think about just a few of those uh, in the text today. And I want to begin with the last phrase that we read in verse 25, where Paul speaks about two laws. Two laws. It's kind of a summary statement of the whole passage. And I think if we start there to help us to understand a little better of what he's saying. So at the end of verse 25, he says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So what, what, does, what does that mean? Well, the law of God is just that. It is the Old Testament law of God. You, your mind may go, uh, and it's a good place to go, to the Ten Commandments, if you will, the moral law of God. Verse 22, Paul says, I delight in the law of God. He loves it. He delights in it. This is the same law that he speaks about in verse 12, where he describes it there as holy uh, and righteous and good. And he says uh, in verse 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. That is, as a new creation in Christ, he has a renewed heart and mind, and it's his desire to live out the holy law of God. He, he wants to follow God in holiness. But Paul says there's another law at work in me. And when he uses the word law there, it's confusing to us because it's, it's not really, he doesn't mean like law in the sense of Ten Commandments, but more like law as a principle. There's another principle that's operating in my life, another reality that's working in my flesh. He says, with my flesh, I serve the, the law of sin. And so if the law of God is working in his mind, he wants to follow God. It's the law of sin that is working in his flesh. What does he mean by, by, by that? Well, we, we've learned that we have died to sin and that we've been given new life in Christ, right? The old man has died, he said. We're new creations in Christ. But here's the reality that we all know. We're still in old bodies of flesh, aren't we? Uh, we still have uh, the flesh. Paul taught that in 1 Corinthians 15 that one day, either when we die, these bodies die, or Christ comes back, that we're going to get new resurrected bodies. Won't that be a great thing? Um, but that's then. 
But now, we're still, notice the phrase, of the flesh, he says. We're of the flesh. Now, now just some clarification. If you remember back in verse 5, Paul says, while we were living in the flesh, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members and our flesh to bear fruit for death. Notice that while we were in the flesh, that is, we were in our lost condition, we were headed towards death, to be in the flesh is Paul's way of saying someone is lost, someone doesn't know Christ. If you flip over a page to chapter 8, he'll clarify this even further. Verse 8, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, he says, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. That phrase, in the flesh, refers to our lost, unsaved condition. Although as Christians we are not in the flesh, Paul is saying here in Romans 7, the flesh is still very much in you, right? We're no longer captive to it. We're no longer under its dominion, but we can still act fleshly. How many of you know that this morning? Well, there should have been a lot of amens there, right? Of course you know what that means, exactly. And again, think about what he said in chapter 6. We have died to sin, but that does not mean that sin has died in us, right? We've been freed from the penalty of sin through Christ, but we are not free from the presence of sin. It's still there. We are not in the flesh, but the flesh is still in us, he says. So why do we continue to struggle with sin after we're saved? It's because we're of the flesh. It's still alive in us. We're no longer under its dominion. We're no longer under its curse. We're no longer under its condemnation. Praise the Lord. But it is still present, and it is still actively working against the new persons that we are in Jesus Christ. Now, now think about that, and let's start back at verse 14 and briefly walk back through the text and uh, you can see more of this clearly. Verse 14, he says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, what does he say? What's the phrase? Of the flesh, sold under sin. He, he's saying, with my mind, I know that the law is spiritual. It's of God. It's holy. It's righteous. It's good, just as our Heavenly Father is. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with me. I'm of the flesh, he says. Not in the flesh, but of the flesh. And I would add that just as the law was not the problem, ultimately the flesh is not the problem either. It is. The flesh is just the arena that sin works in in our lives. It's the place of operation for it. Those of you who uh, over, the, over the years have thought that perhaps, uh, 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 not you, but, but others over the years have thought we should destroy our bodies because the body is, is somehow the enemy. The flesh is the enemy. That is not true church. And I would say to things that, that may apply to some, stop cutting yourself. Stop trying to destroy your body. It's the law of sin that is at work in your body that is the problem. Amen? There's a difference there. Sin is our problem. 
Paul says the same thing at the beginning. There's kind of three sections here that he starts off. Verse 14 is the beginning. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. He says it again. He repeats it at the beginning of the next paragraph, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, he says. It's not the new creation that I'm failing to obey. It's sin that's dwelling in me. That's causing the problem. He says it one more time. Verse 20, 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. This is a law. This is a principle working in me. My mind is on the law of God. I want to follow Christ. But evil lies close at hand. It's so close. It's in my flesh. And it battles every good thing that I do. So because we're still of the flesh, sin is still present in us and it works, which leads us secondly to two other things, two desires that are at work in you. Paul articulates this uh, well again uh, in so many ways. Verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, my desire, but I do the very thing I hate. And again, if if you're a Christian, you can identify with this frustration, can't you? You can identify with the sense of desperation that he has, desire. I mean, all of us who are in Christ would, I think all of us who are in Christ today would say, we want to do what is right. We want to follow Christ. We want to live for him. But many times that we don't, we don't. And And I want to stress, I don't think Paul is saying that evil wins out every single time in his life. That's not true either, is it? He's not saying that. He's just frustrated that it wins more than it ought to win. Aren't you frustrated by that? He repeats the same frustration again, verse, the middle part of 18. He says, I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not uh, do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Again, Paul is not saying that he can't figure out what to do. He's just saying that he can't obey to the extent that he longs to obey. It's a struggle in his life. Now, I think it's important, again, to keep saying, we have died to sin, but sin has not died to us. Likewise, here in chapter 7, we have died to the law. But yet we are not perfect according to God's law. The law of God still functions as it did when we were lost. The law still reveals sin, doesn't it? It's still doing the same thing in your life as a believer, even after we're saved. It doesn't have any power to save us, doesn't have any power to sanctify us, but it's still revealing sin. And again, the closer we get to Christ, we would expect that the brightness and the glory and the holiness of Christ would shine on our lives and expose more sin in us. And that is how it works. I love how MacArthur puts it here. He says, although spiritual growth results in a decreasing frequency of sin, we're sinning less, it inversely involves a heightened sensitivity to it, you see. So again, don't overread what Paul's saying. It almost sounds like, many he never has any kind of victory over sin. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. He's just expressing this conflict of desires that are battling in him, this desire of a new heart that belongs to Christ, but yet he's still residing in this old flesh, and he still have remnants of it. It's not dead yet, and it battles. He articulates it a third time, 
Verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, he says. Notice that, the inner being, the inward man delights in God's law, but sin in my flesh wars against. Again, this is one of those places where people say, well, Paul can't be describing himself as a Christian here. How can a Christian be captive to the law? As he said, when we've been set free, he's told us that. But I remind you again, this is what Paul has already said. This is the same language he used to us back in chapter 6. Listen to it here again, chapter 6. You can read it, verse 12. In light of what Paul is saying here in chapter 7, he said to us, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal what? In your body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members, your body to God as instruments for righteousness. He's already told us that. Why would he have told us that if there wasn't a possibility for us to let sin reign again in our lives? But it's true, isn't it? And it does. He never said that when you became a Christian, all of your battles with sin would go away. Not one time has he told us that. He said, don't let it reign in your body, in your flesh. Don't let it rain. Chapter 7, verse 23, Paul seems to be saying that many times it feels like it's taken him captive again. Maybe, and maybe even for a time it does. In the flesh, you, you, you let it have rain and, and control. Haven't you dealt with stubborn sins in your life, Christian? Made me think this week about those silly birthday candles that somebody puts on your cake. You know, you blow them out and they relight themselves. You blow them out again, they relight themselves. And I mean, you're like, hey, haven't you had sins in your life that way where you've, you felt like you dealt with them and then they just reignite out of nowhere again, over and over again? Stubborn sins that don't seem to go away. It's interesting the reason Paul gives here for not doing what he wants to do and doing what he hates. He says it three times, doesn't he? Verse 17, here's the reason. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Uh, verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 23, it's the law of sin, he says, that dwells in my members. I mean, you read those words, you think, you know, if Paul were not a Christian, that would be the worst possible excuse to give for your sinfulness, isn't it? Oh, it's not me, it's sin in me. I mean, would you accept that from your child who came to you after sinning and said, you know, Dad, it really wasn't me, it was sin living in me? Oh, of course not. But, but Paul is tapping something here, isn't it? He's saying, I've come to understand, I've come to know who I am in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, I am someone who has died to sin, and I've been raised to walk in newness of life. I have died to the law. It can no longer condemn me, even though it continues to expose me. Even though I've given my heart fully to Christ, there is this indwelling sin that keeps dragging me down. The Christian life is a battle. 
And, and if we don't understand this, if we don't understand this as Christians, this is why this is important. We're going to be prone to give up. Oh, this sin is just too hard. This sin is just too stubborn. I'm just going to quit fighting. I'm just going to give in to it. This is just who I am, right? This is who God made me to be, so I'm just going to continue in this. That's baloney, right? Amen? That's not the out that he gives us here. He's not writing these words to excuse our defeat. He's thinking of victory that we can and should be ours in Christ. But the point he is making here in chapter 7 is that victory only comes through struggle. It only comes through struggle and war. Christian growth, discipleship, is not going to come by some secret formula, by, by some new book that's going to have all the answers and you just follow this three-step plan and, in the Christian life and you're all going to grow. And, all, and, and what happens is the first signs of struggle and difficulty, we start to look for other things. We start to look for quick formulas, for easy routes, for some kind of microwavable kind of a thing or some new kind of charismatic type of experience that we're going to have and it's going to end all of our struggles with sin. No, struggle is normal for the Christian life. It is the normal path that leads to, leads to holiness. There'll be a constant spiritual warfare, and it won't be easy because of the stubborn sin that resides in us. It leads us to the place that we live as Christians, at least until Christ comes back, between uh, the third doublet, which is two cries. Two cries. The first one in verse 24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Again, scholars have read that and said, how in the world can Paul be referring to himself as a Christian? I mean, after all, he's an apostle here and he's crying out the wretchedness of his life. I think... This is not so much a cry of despair, though, as, as it is a cry of longing, isn't it? A cry of longing. If, if it would be despair, we wouldn't know what the outcome was going to be, but we already know the outcome, what it's going to be. This is a cry of longing to be free from the presence of sin. Don't you have that same cry within you, Christian? To be free from this struggle, free from the presence. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul knows that as Christians, he's already told us back in chapter 5 that we've been justified, we have peace with God, we've obtained access into His grace through faith, we have the hope of the glory of God to look forward to. But, but the certain hope that Paul is crying out for here is for future deliverance future deliverance, to be delivered from this earthly body. He's crying out here for the day, either when Christ comes or He calls us home, and we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be given a new resurrected body, and we will be free from the very presence of sin in our lives. Who will deliver me, Paul cries, which leads to a second cry, and it's a cry of confidence. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver us? Jesus will. And He will not just redeem 
our souls as He already has, but one day He will redeem our very bodies and will be free from the very presence of sin. Isn't that great to look forward to? Amen? And you think about, this is where this is headed. These two cries here are nearly simultaneous in our lives, aren't they? I mean, we feel them in us. And yet as Christians, we we live in the tension between them both, longing to be free from sin and still having to fight it, but then knowing that our deliverance is in Jesus. Now, I resisted looking ahead for a long time, but we got to look ahead just for a moment at Romans chapter 8, just for a few verses. Romans 8, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Look in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, we are grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. And what's the last line? What does it say? Let's say it together. The redemption of our bodies. You see where he's going? Won't that be a great day? I was thinking of that song, Come Thou Fountain. I think it's a newer verse, but it goes, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. What a day. But until then, we fight on, church. Until then, we, we fight. What do we fight with? We fight with this knowledge that Paul has given us, this this truth here, Romans 6, 7, and soon 8. And we fight. How do we fight? We fight with the tools that he's given us to fight with. We fight with prayer. We fight by being in the Word every day. We fight by being in fellowship with other believers, by coming together and not forsaking that time. We fight by evangelizing and ministering and serving to others. We fight by these disciplines that He's given us, abiding in our Savior Jesus Christ. And we fight from a position of victory. We've been encouraged because of the outcome of our battle, is absolutely certain. The triumph of God's grace is assured. No matter how badly we think that we're doing right now in this moment, no matter how many struggles we've come in here with, no matter how much despair that we're feeling because of the intensity of the battle of sin that we've been in, it is the knowledge of this victory that enables us to fight on. His grace is greater than our sins. It will prevail in our lives. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ, Jesus Christ. Now, there's one more resource to help us in this, and I know you're thinking, why didn't he mention it? Well, he hasn't mentioned it yet. He's going to in chapter 8. It is the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other sermon. We'll have to come back to that later. Let's pray. Lord, um, we, we trust 
that these words that you've given us are very important in our lives. And so please help us, Lord, to understand them. And and may you use them, Lord, not just to instruct us, Lord, but to equip and empower us in the battles with our sin. We're so thankful that your grace is greater than our sin. And that you have not just redeemed our souls, but one day you will redeem our bodies, our flesh, and we will be free from sinning. We look forward to that day. And even as we focus our attention now on this closing song about that day, Lord, may we be encouraged. Encouraged to persevere. Encouraged to stand. Encouraged to fight. You are worthy, Lord. And if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, we pray uh, that through this, Lord, today, that your spirit would work and you would open eyes to see the amazing thing that Jesus has done, his death and resurrection for us. May they trust Jesus as their Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.